Kurta, Woman Success China is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. This week, we are joined by China marketing specialist, Olivia Plotnik. She has grown her career with the emergence of WeChat and provides deep insights on the marketing and e-commerce space through the platform. We discuss how to build organic growth and a loyal follower base, how many programs are game-changing and advice to leverage them, and what trends have been accelerated by COVID. This is all set within the context of her career, now leading a consultancy. She also provides advice to young professionals on how to get their foot in the door. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ta for Ta. This week, we're joined by Olivia Plotnik, who is a China marketing specialist. We're really excited to have you on the show today, by the way. <laughs> I'm uh, super excited to be here. Yeah, and you know, this is an area that is of interest to me, and I hope it's going to be of interest to a lot of our listeners and I think it will be really helpful to just, you know, learn how you've gotten to the the point where you've gotten to accumulating all this knowledge and expertise and what were all the steps along the way. And so I think it actually just really helpful for listeners to give them almost the highlights reel of your career, just kind of from a bird's eye view. Um, what have been the steps and and what were you doing each step of the way? Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for for having me on the show. It's always exciting to get to talk about, you know, all things China and um, WeChat marketing. So I'm excited to have this talk with you this afternoon. So I moved to China for the first time in 2012 when I was studying abroad for for college. And then I was just so interested by the culture and the language. I actually moved back to live in China full-time in 2015. And I started working in marketing and communications. I started out at a small agency and then moved to a bigger agency. And now I actually run a small agency of my own. So my whole time in China has really been centered around um, marketing and social media and really delving into you know, the, the new tech um, and the new trends that are coming out of one of the, the fastest growing marketplaces in the world. That's great. And I think we'll definitely dig into to each of those moments, each of those uh, tension points, I like to call them along the way. So actually, let's just go back to the beginning. You got your introduction to China through a language immersion program in, beginning in high school. You know, what prompted this choice for you? And do you think that really jet set you off into having a career at the nexus of a, an area of expertise and China? So I started studying Chinese my second year of high school, and I'm from the U.S., so like many high schools, the common languages offered were Spanish, German, French, and on my second year of high school, our school actually got a grant from the Chinese government and became one of the first high schools to offer a Chinese language program, and it seemed really difficult, really challenging, and not a lot of people were doing it. So that was right up my alley. And after our first year of studying Chinese, we got the opportunity actually to go and visit China for a, a summer in high school. 
And that was the first time I had actually left the U.S., so my, my first time out of the country, and it was quite a shocker um, to go into mm. a completely different culture by every single facet. Um, and that really kind of kicked off my fascination with what was going on in this part of the world. So I continued studying Chinese through high school and continued in college. And that really kind of led me down the path to where I am now. I think if you would have told me when I first started studying Chinese that, you know, in 10 years, I would own my own business in China, I would have not believed you at all. Um, mm. But, you know, I think as with everybody, and especially everybody in China, just through a series of events and opportunities and really being forced to put yourself outside of your comfort zone constantly, um, that has led me to where I am today. Right. So speaking of events and opportunities, was there an event or opportunity that arose when you first worked as an adoption program assistant? Um, it seemed like that was another opportunity to make a choice and make an intentional choice to to continue working in China in in a different capacity. Yeah, this was my first job out of college, and you know I, I was initially attracted to it because obviously. It, it had to do with China and the U.S. and and kind of bridging the two cultures there. And so I spent a lot of time um, working with our office in China and then parents in the U.S. who were looking to adopt Chinese children and really kind of, um, you know, helping them with all the, the paperwork and the documents and the whole entire adoption process, which is very complicated and very lengthy. And I think this was my first kind of introduction into the power of communication um, and as well as, you know, really um, how crucial it is to bridge these two cultures together. So I think that's, you know, where where the seed was, was kind of planted for um, everything else, you know, Going further um, in in that field wasn't my desire. I was uh, I studied more around business administration and marketing, so that was definitely where I wanted to go. But getting that first experience, you know, being able to work in um, this really kind of high stakes situation, you know, you're bringing another person into into someone's family, um, being involved in this high stakes situation, as well as you know, bridging these two cultures together. I think was a, a good foundation for, for laying the groundwork to, to where I am. And, you know, how did you at the time feel like you were bridging together those cultures? Was it just the fact that you were really working as the conduit um, between the cultures? Yeah, I was working as the liaison, but also, you know, we were, the people who are adopting from China, um, most of the time, they actually have never been to China before. So they have, you know, zero knowledge of the language, zero knowledge of the culture. They're just focused on, you know, bringing this this child home. And so, you know, everything from um, food to, you know, certain um, practices, that's all completely new to these people who are bringing home a child from China. So a lot of it had to do with just kind of um, explaining things in a way that people would understand and explaining things in a way that would prepare them um, for this new family member who was coming from a completely different world. And it kind of, I think, 
um, you know, at, at that time also opened my eyes to how little um, really people know about this country and, and you know, the, the myriad of misconceptions um, and miscommunication that happens. And at the time, were you living in Beijing? And, you know, my other question was, at this time, were you still uh, in, like intensely studying the language? Because I can imagine with an immersion program, um, you get part of the way there, but there also still is this hurdle to really deepen uh, your understanding of the language and really feeling like you have a grasp and control of it. Yeah, that's a great point. I think I still struggle with that even today. Um, <laughs> when I was, I, I don't imagine ever not struggling with that. But um, when I was living in Beijing, I was doing uh, my study abroad program. So it was, you know, all day, every day going to classes. I was actually the only American in my class um, and the only American actually that I knew at, at my school at the time. That's so it was pretty, pretty um I think isolating is kind of can be taken negatively, but it was yeah very much an immersion program. And then at, when I was working for the adoption agency, I was based in the U.S., based in Oregon. So I was having to communicate with our team over in Beijing a lot, but I was um, based on the U.S. side. And then I think the when I really started to you know have that moment where you pick up a lot of you know very cultural nuances or, or kind of the, a deeper understanding of the language was when I started working in China um, for marketing agencies. So we would have meetings in Chinese, you know, all my colleagues would be speaking Chinese. And, you know, even though I'm not totally comfortable all the time um, answering back fully in, in Chinese for some, some parts of the professional meetings, um, you know, you pick up so much more of the language than you do in any type of immersion program or any type of study mm -hmm. in school. It's just really about, you know, the day to day phrases that people use. And, that, you know, you come to a point where you no longer are looking up words, but you can tell, you know, from the from the contents context and the sentence, okay, that this is what that means. Um, so you get a whole other level of, of, I think, appreciation for the language. My question too for you is how has communication, and uh, by communication, I guess I mean um, more like the platforms onto which you do it, changed over the time that you've been working with and in China? So I actually... It still blows my mind. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that WeChat was originally unveiled in like 2010, 2011, um, which is a lot more recent than I would have expected uh, or like remember. So, you know, how has communication changed over time? In one word, drastically. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being in Beijing in 2007 and signing up for Facebook in a government... Um, school actually so that's how and now you know obviously it's it's completely blocked and we yeah we use something totally different so it's changed just in you know the 10 plus years that I've been going there um when I went back in 2012 was when WeChat you know was first starting out so I actually vividly remember you know one of my friends saying oh you need to download this app and um, mm. we thought it was super cool. You know, you could shake it and you could add people around you. It was like kind of kind of creepy, kind of cool at the same time. Um, 
but it was just starting out. And now fast forward to today, you know, it's part of your everyday life, part of your everyday hour almost. Um, and, you know, it's not only for people to use as, you know, as messaging, but it's, you know, social media, it's paying your bills, it's, it's you know, we call it like this super app. Um, so it's evolved immensely over the past several years. And just within the past, you know, two years, two years plus, the platform has had huge changes to it with the emergence of mini programs. So these little apps within WeChat itself. And that has completely altered, um, you know, how brands are communicating with consumers on this, how brands are pushing um, e-commerce. So, you know, three years ago, you would have had no idea that WeChat would look like what it is today. And so that's, you know, how, how quickly it changes. I think if you look at Instagram, sure, we have, you know, stories are a little bit more recent, something like that, but the app is largely the same. And same with Facebook, you know, there are some new features and of course it looks different, uh, looks a little bit, you know, more sleek or updated, but the concept of the platform and the functionality hasn't changed that much. Whereas with WeChat, you know, we have so many more features now um, and it's moved so much more into people's lives than any other platform has in the West. Yeah. And I definitely want your POV on some of these, I feel like rapid changing um, trends within the space, especially around e-commerce and live streaming and mini programs. So we'll definitely get into that. Um, but actually, let's meet, I think this was your first experience with, you know, working with WeChat in a um, career capacity. I you were working with FitFam and you grew their WeChat follower base when there really wasn't a defined rulebook on how to do so. As we mentioned, um, actually, with I would call the recent emergence of WeChat, it hasn't been that many years that WeChat's been available to customers. So, how did you think about developing your own rulebook for? building a follower base and what did you learn along the way in those earlier days? So at the time that I started uh, managing the FitFam WeChat account, I was actually working at a small marketing agency and we were helping, you know, big multinational brands with their China digital strategy. So handling their website localization and WeChat and Weibo, which is kind of like Twitter. Um, and then, you know, FitFam was actually, um, this small at the time um, community that I joined and we were doing free workouts in Shanghai every single morning. And, you know, we wanted to grow the community or we wanted a way to, to communicate with our, um, with our community. So we had this WeChat account and I said, you know, I, I work with brands um, doing this, so I'll take this over. And, you know, going from working with quite big multinational clients who have a lot of um, red tape and a lot of kind of um, requirements on how you have to manage things to kind of just taking the reins and experimenting myself was super different. So I was able to really test a lot of things out, you know, try a lot of different types of content, um, be a little bit more creative than we were doing um, in my day job, so to say. And this, I think, led to, you know, 
not only did um, you know the stuff that we were doing on WeChat help, but the community. Um, I think a huge amount of credit goes to the people who are organizing the events, and um, you know, a big part of it was offline. But you know, within WeChat, um, we were able to really try some things out, like doing a lot of um, community-generated uh, content. So really focusing on, you know, taking all the pictures, taking all the feedback that we were receiving from people on the ground mm -hmm. and using it into our content. Um, we tried different things like publishing, you know, many, many articles um, one after another. I think there was a period of time um, during one of our challenges that we did one article every single day. So it was very, uh, a lot of content um, and then varying it, you know, throughout a period of time. So I think, you know, with that, um, it was during a time when people were also reading a lot of content and spending a lot more time on WeChat than they have mm -hmm. now. You know, we just talked about how, how have these platforms changed in the past several years. And it's really important to note that WeChat, has changed so much thanks to not only what has happened inside the app, but what is going on with other apps um, and the social and digital landscape. So, you know, several years ago when we were growing that account, articles were being read a lot more. Um, people were following a lot more accounts. And so I would argue that it was relatively easier at that time to grow an account than it is today. You know, we've seen, um, just to give you an idea, the read rate for articles um, in 2019 is about, you'll get on average like 1,400 reads. And that's a 24% drop year on year mm. from the year before. So it's really, really difficult to get your content read on WeChat these days. And it's even harder to get somebody who reads that content to actually follow the account. So the average person follows about 20 WeChat accounts and there are over 20 million WeChat accounts for brands out there. So it's really difficult to get people to actually, um, you know, read the content and follow the account. So I think, you know, what we were doing back then it was you know some of the same principles can still apply but it's gotten so much more competitive and it's gotten so much more different now with you know we have mini programs um there's now you know live streaming available on wechat so it's changed so much that you know a lot of the the tactics that we used back then just wouldn't work you know two years later and actually i think you have an article out there uh, called why aren't people reading my WeChat articles <laughs> <laughs> and you know could you get into a little bit more depth about you know why aren't people reading besides these external factors of course because you know people are looking for more bite size there's more other opportunities for more you know tactical brand sense let's say they think they have a niche enough audience that is following their official accounts and they think will read their articles you know what's going, what might, what might they be doing wrong? Sure. So I think one of the, and of course I get this question like every week from clients and, you know, the main thing that I can see from the past, um, you know, six to eight months is that um, in WeChat, there's no concept of build it and they will come. You have to do a lot 
of groundwork to get your content out there. So what I mean by this is that you'll have your account followers. Let's say like you have 500 people following your account, super, super niche audience, really tiny following. When you publish an article that gets sent out to all your followers, um, maybe 200, let's say like 250 people will open the article from that. That's about an average number. Then you'll need to be pushing that content on your moments in group chats. Um, it takes, you know, your team, yourself to really actually be pushing it out there or else you're going to stay with the same amount of followers, the same amount of reads every single month. There's not this, this content discovery on WeChat. It's really difficult. Um, if you're just publishing articles, um, people are not really going to find those as you would with something like, you know, LinkedIn or even Facebook um, because, you know, WeChat is a very closed platform. So if you and your team are not sharing your article, and I don't mean like, because a lot of times people will say, oh, I shared it on my moments. That is not enough. Mm. You have to be sharing it um, in groups. Groups are huge. And, and this is a, another popular topic, but um, what we call private traffic has become really important in WeChat. So these 500 person WeChat groups <clears throat> usually centered around a specific topic um, or a community have become really vital to getting your content read um, for people engaging with your brand. And what we find a lot of times is, you know, brands will have, um, they can have a really active WeChat group. Like you have several groups with three, 400, 500 people in them. Once they share this article into those groups, then it's getting, you know, another two thirds of the article reads within these groups. And we find that a lot of times people who will actually convert. So if, if you know, they're selling something within the article, a lot of people will convert on this and they're not even following the account, but they're in the group chat. They're responsive to content being shared. So, you know, it's it's important not only to have your own um, brand account and be sharing content in there, but any other WeChat groups that you're in, you know, that, that are appropriate to be sharing your content in is really, really important. I would say that's like one of the number one things that you can do. And it's the number one thing I see people not doing that would actually, you know, make a huge difference. Um, I think recently we're seeing a little bit of success with, channels. So WeChat um, just this year opened up kind of like a video um, platform within WeChat. So it, it looks a little bit like um, Douyin or TikTok when you're just kind of scrolling through a bunch of videos. Um, mm. And these don't have to be accounts or people that you are following. So it's something very different for WeChat. Um, and within channels, you can actually link a photo or video to a WeChat article. So you have some chances of getting your content um, discoverable from there. It's still relatively new. Um, so, you know, I can't speak to any stats or data on that, but we are seeing um, varied success with some of our clients who um, are using channels to kind of drive traffic back to official accounts. Yeah. And I actually want to go back to, to private traffic for a moment uh, because I have been seeing a lot of media buzz around defining it and, and how to, 
appropriately leverage it. Was this a term that came about to describe a phenomena or is it something that was, you know, created at the same time? Um, So we we have like in the West, um, I think the equivalent would be owned traffic. So Mm. things like, you know, email lists or phone numbers, things like this. Um, and since it's on WeChat, we still can't call it owned traffic because if WeChat went down, you know, all your contacts would still go down with it. Um, mm. But, you know, private traffic, um, you can really kind of consider it owned by that brand. Um, and you have a way, a direct way to to communicate with those people who are in the group. I think you're, you've described a lot of the, the trends that are happening in this space. I'd love to talk a bit more about mini programs and how the emergence of this functionality, I guess you could say, within WeChat about being able to compress the size of an app and uh, not really having to store them on the super app like WeChat, how that's really changed the game for brands. And um, what sort of advice are you giving around mini programs about the creation of them, about what to put on them? You know, how how do you have, have you been guiding brands around that? It's actually really funny because mini programs, they were launched in 2017 mm-hmm. and nothing really happened for like a year. Nobody knew what to do with them. Um, I think I remember writing a blog at the end of 2016 where we were like trying to explain, you know, this inception type concept of yeah. apps within an app and then like nothing happened nobody used them and then yeah. I remember uh, like seeing the DD version of the mini program and the Starbucks mini yeah. program around yeah, that they were time some of the first like, movers. <laughs> yeah. now they have amazing mini programs but um so at the end of that year there was one mini program game that came out super like very simple stupid very addicting game that was just like you holding down your thumb on the screen, trying to get a pin to jump from one box to the other. But Mm -hmm. this game had, I think, over 400 million users within just several days. Um, And this really opened a lot of people up to how convenient and great it was to share mini programs within WeChat. So one of the key things that Tencent has always kind of pushed is that, you know, mini programs look really great when you share them within WeChat. So you can share them um, within a group chat or within a a chat with, you know, just another person. Um, And it looks really, it looks better than sharing a link um, and you're taken, you know, it opens the app right up in WeChat without ever leaving. So after, you know, the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, there was this explosion of all these brands started creating mini programs. And today I think we have over 2 million mini programs, which is more than are in the the app store itself. So there's a lot out there and brands, you know, they're creating them all the time for every different type of functionality you can have. And they've really kind of changed the game um, in terms of, you know, e-commerce, especially, I think that's probably the biggest one. So a lot of brands now have an e-commerce mini program. So instead of sending people, you know, out to a website, which um, is rarely used in China or sending people to Tmall or Taobao, where you don't own that data anymore, 
you can actually still sell to people within WeChat. So this became, you know, really appealing and continues to be more and more appealing for brands as big platforms, um, you know, like Alibaba um, and with Tencent's JD, they own a lot of that data and it's very expensive for you to advertise your brand um, on those platforms, on those e-commerce platforms. So WeChat mini programs, um, you know, they're a great way for you to see the entire customer journey within this app. Um, you know, you can have all your loyalty programs and, and customer care within it. So, and it's, you know, it's, it's definitely nowhere near as expensive um, for advertising. So it's really, I think, um, become a very welcomed solution by a lot of brands. Now, of course, they're, you know, still in Tmall. Um, I, th I think that's still an important channel for a lot of these big brands. But again, they're they're able to do so much with these mini programs. Um, they can now create, you know, a lot of um, like AI uh, mini programs or where you can, uh, not AI, sorry, VR mini programs where you can try on like different mm. lipsticks or clothes, which is really kind of cool. So you can do many different things within these these tiny apps and they can actually help drive um, other app downloads. So a lot of times, like, you know, you mentioned Starbucks um, and there were, uh, you know, a couple other ones that have seen a big success with people actually using the mini programs and then they'll go download the app. So I think um, Olama and Meituan, you know, a lot of people use the mini program and then download the app. So it's, you know, it's not, um, they're not going to replace apps. Um, it's more kind of just like a second step in that type of journey. And what's the reason for that conversion? I, I actually haven't heard about that as much about moving from down from having the mini program to actually downloading a larger app that's more permanent, um, permanent on the space on your phone. What is it because they know that there's more functionality that they're not getting and they like the experience and they want more. Is that the yeah, reason? Yeah, exactly. I think one good example is um, there's like a, an app that gives you a lot of face filters, um, which mm. is very much loved in China. And so mm -hmm. with their, with their mini program, they had a few available and then they said, you know, if you download the app, you can get all of these um, and all of these different capabilities. So it's kind of like a, a teaser or a little taste of what you can get on the app. Um, and then, you know, then someone would go and download it. And are brands creating these from scratch? Are they, are they building these mini programs from scratch like they would build their, their app? Yeah, it really depends um, on what they want to do. So there's actually really great services like uh, Yodan is one of the most popular ones, or there's SXL, um, which is from Strikingly. And these are kind of like, you know, uh, Wix or Squarespace, where you get a template, and you can kind of from that template, you know, build your own mini program. So it's really great for e-commerce and for a lot of the smaller brands that we work with, it's a really great solution because um, it's quite a low annual fee to use the platform. Really easy to, you know, upload your products on, um, mm. but it's, you know, pretty basic functionality. Mm. If, um, you know, if, if you wanted to build out a, a custom game or something like you see a lot of these really big beauty brands, um, doing or you know like Nike or Starbucks they have really advanced mini programs that those are definitely built from scratch 
Um, but for a lot of brands, you know, if you're just doing e-commerce, there's really great solutions for that. And I think, you know, one of the things I run into a lot of times with um, smaller brands is they think they need to hire somebody to build out a custom mini program for them um, when they, you know, can actually have a very good solution using one of these templated programs. Very interesting. And it seems like you work with a whole host of different um brands that are looking for consulting services now in your your current role in being a China marketing specialist. You know, what broadly, what are some of the big pressing questions that clients are coming to you with? What what are some patterns that you're seeing with the types of things that um, different clients are grappling with? And, you know, is it the smaller smaller brands grappling with certain things that are very different than for example, larger brands? Yeah. So I think, you know, for smaller brands, of course, because China marketing in China is very expensive. Um, It's not like on Instagram where you can easily kind of have this like, you know, $5 ad spend or Facebook where you you can see good results with a reasonable amount of money. Um, For WeChat to advertise on moments you, I think it's a minimum buy-in of like 50,000 RMB. So it's mm-hmm. already pretty high stakes that you have to get to. So for a lot of these smaller brands, um, that's really not an option for them. So it's part of the fun and part of the challenge as well um, that we have to to work with them to develop, you know, really amazing content um, and also other engagement strategies to get the, the brand awareness out there. I think a lot of what these small brands struggle with and and you know I know big brands struggle with this as well is just kind of the the expectations around um the you know the the following and the read rates. So, you know, a lot of people expect mm-hmm. when they open the account and they start publishing content that people um you know they're going to get 500, 1000, 3000 followers very quickly. Um if you're not doing any type of, you know, big partnerships with influencers or KOLs, as we say, or you're not, you know, doing this type of moments advertising, if you're just growing your content organically, um, you know, I, I would expect around, you know, 2000 to 3000 in a year is awesome. Um, and that's very slow growth, I think, for mm-hmm. a lot of brands. They they want, they want things to happen a lot faster. Um, I think the upside with this is that when you're growing your account very intentionally like this, so with some of our clients, you know, we have achieved um, around 4,000 followers for them within the span of about a year. And these are all really engaged followers. So they, they follow the account because they loved the content. They love the concept of the brand. Um, you know, the, the content was consistent. It was very value driven. So they follow the account and they continue to follow the account. Now, what happens a lot with WeChat is because it is a, a messaging app. So when a brand publishes content, that goes into your personal messages. So brands have to be really, really careful about, you know, how often they publish, what type of content they publish, because it's very tempting for somebody to unfollow if they get, you know, too many unwanted Mm. messages or just irrelevant messages from a brand. Um, So, you know, having 
this kind of measuring how many followers you gain in a month and how many you're losing is really, really important. I think your brand, you know, you can only really tell the strength of your brand by looking at this number, by looking at how many people are continuing to stay with you. I have heard from a lot of clients before who want to do, you know, very, um, very like promo-y, very salesy stuff to get more followers. Um, when this happens, we typically see followers drop off, you know, within a month or within just a few weeks because the content wasn't so relevant for them. They were just wanting to get that, you know, coupon or that free prize, mm. something like this. So it really um, doesn't pan out in the long run. And I think, you know, not only specific to WeChat, but just marketing in general, um, I see a tendency with brands to want to um, have these vanity metrics, you know, have a lot of followers, but they don't realize that, you know, it really only takes these true um, followers to actually, you know, help your business survive. I would much rather see a business with a hundred um, followers that are really engaged, that wanted to follow the account than, you know, an account with 1000 followers. So I think it's really about, um, a lot of times educating people on this this concept um, and then, you know, defining how can you really bring value as a brand to get those quality followers that will stay with you long term. Yeah, I mean, I'm even reminded of some of the early internet days when there was that article that was published about having a thousand true fans and it's mm -hmm. um, about building that niche loyal follower base and it's interesting. It's, of course, some of those principles around online marketing transcend platform transcend time exactly. so I think what you're saying is definitely resonant and I'm going to be surprised if it was influenced by some of the stuff that's out there that I also read so I think you're you're definitely spot on but I think a lot of the difficulty is understanding how to apply it and so hearing about how you can actually grow that follower base organically is is very interesting because I think starting from square zero, that's really when you want to, to bring someone in to help advise about how do I get those, those first followers. Um, so that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so I don't, I, I'm curious as well. Um, are there things that you're, I feel like everybody is always asking about COVID and how that's changed the landscape, but I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask, um, are there things that you're watching in terms of how the WeChat landscape is changing and whether that be channels, whether that be through the types of messaging that you're recommending, you know, what are you watching kind of at the nexus of WeChat marketing and COVID? I think COVID really, it didn't bring anything particularly new to China or to WeChat, but I think it accelerated a lot of these trends that were already happening. Mm. One thing in particular is the emergence of, um, not the emergence, but kind of the the rising um, influence of live streaming. So um, when, you know, COVID hit back in, in late January and February, WeChat was very quick to roll out um, live streaming mini program capabilities um, and other platforms already have live streaming capabilities. So 
those were being used very heavily. Um, and, you know, WeChat, I think, responded very quickly to, to push that out, and rightfully so. Um, you know, you can find a lot of case studies about how brands were actually, you know, not e even just able to survive the period when in China, you know, nobody was going um, outside um, just by live streaming. And some of them even like doubled their sales from the year before because of live streaming. So I think this was, you know, not something totally new, but something that was mm -hmm. really um, kind of accelerated at this period. I, I do think that there was a shift um, in, you know, how live streams are done. So, you know, I think for the past few years, live streaming has been um, maybe a little bit more of like an entertainment source. Um, a lot of success um, came from, you know, people with a huge following or these kind of internet celebrities who would do live streaming. But a lot of brands, you know, when they were, when they had to close down their stores during COVID, they had their sales staff actually start out um, doing live streams and that was wildly successful. Um, so I think you'll see a lot more brands kind of implementing this, not necessarily mm -hmm. working with these huge influencers or celebrities to do live streams, but just starting it off on their own. Um, you know, you have like makeup brands, um, salespeople doing consultations, things like this um, that have been really successful. And I think even in the West, you know, you started to see that um, when COVID, you know, really started to hit there, you know, the, the emergence of all these Instagram lives, right? Every brand was, was doing an Instagram live. Um, so I think it really yeah. started to come down to people are looking for um, expertise over entertainment um, from when they're, when they're looking at these live streams from brands. And it's really interesting. Um, last year, I had the opportunity to work with Alibaba for a project and I went out and I visited this um, village kind of a little bit away from Shanghai and they're doing um, pearls. So they're selling like 80% of the world's freshwater pearls. And there was wow. all these people that are doing live streaming. So they're selling all these pearls just by live streaming like in their houses. And um, there was one guy who was doing a million RMB in revenue per day, live streaming no. pearls <laughs> from, from his office. And, um, you know, he said, we asked him like, you know, why, why are you so successful? Basically, why are you so good at this? And um, his, his response was that, you know, his family has been doing this for generations. They've been, you know, farming for generations. He knows mm. so much about this. And it's really his expertise. So, you know, people are drawn to and purchase from him because he can answer all their questions because he can speak to, um, you know, anything about the, his products. So I think, you know, as live streaming kind of evolves and more and more brands um, start experimenting with it, it, of course, it's about entertainment. But it's it's also a large part about expertise. You know, what information, what value can you bring to people um, that's going to make them trust you and buy your product? Right. I think also, too, there's almost a bit of a live streaming gold rush in the sense that people mm -hmm. think that, um, you know, it's a, it's a way to get rich quick or it's a way to really quickly expedite it. But I think what you're bringing up about expertise is really important that you need to have some 
level of uh, depth of understanding of reason and stickiness to get people to to be listening to your live stream just because you're putting content in a, a video format doesn't necessarily mean that people will come because I think there's exactly. a lot of articles out there right now about whether it's uh, you know through Instagram whether it's through reach whether it's through another platform um, it's just an it's another tool uh, but just because you're using a tool doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to experience the dividends that have come to other people that are using the tool so I think you're definitely right on that Exactly. Yeah, um, I think it's it's like um, we're in an era of such a content overload on any platform, you know, in anywhere in the world. So just within the last several years, the I think the accounts that do really well are ones that, you know, they're not just producing content for the sake of producing content. It's really well thought out. It's really valuable. I always tell my clients, you know, if if you had to think really hard to come up with this content, um, and you know, it's, it's not like amazing or it doesn't bring a lot of value. It's not worth to publish it. Like it's not worth to just publish for the sake of publishing. Um, you really have to make sure that, that it's valuable content first. A hundred percent. So it really seems that your career has grown with the, the growth of, not only WeChat, but online marketing and all the tools that are out there for e-commerce brands. And it seems like you got your foot in the door at like a great time because you were able to grow with the platforms that are out there. You know, you must also have a lot of people that come to you asking about getting a job in marketing in China. And for young professionals that are looking for career opportunities in that space, what sort of advice do you give them in the current state of the market now? Yeah. So, you know, it's, I think um, on LinkedIn, I definitely get a lot of people coming to me and asking, you know, how do I get a job in China? What should I do? So yeah. I actually wrote an article to answer all of the, the questions that I often get, but I think people start with, you know, just the basics, like how do I even get a job there in the first place? And, um, you know, I think within the last six months um, that, has really changed, obviously, because nobody can really go anywhere. You can't just pick up and move yourself to China. Um, you know, in my case, when I, um, you know, decided not to work for the adoption agency anymore, I knew I wanted to live in China. I just moved to China and got a job teaching English. And then I looked for, for other jobs where I actually wanted to work. And this works mm. for a lot of people. Like teaching English has been the easiest way to get to China. Um, and then kind of using that as a launch pad from there. A lot of companies, um, you know, prefer to hire somebody who's already in China. You know, just it's a lot easier logistically, mm -hmm. you can do the interviews there, you know what you're getting into. So it's not such a huge shock when you get over there. Um, there's a lot of really great, uh, you know, WeChat accounts and websites that post a lot of job openings. Um, but it is getting a lot harder, I would say, just within the fast, past few years, especially not even considering COVID. Um, there's a lot of, you know, Chinese who were educated abroad and they're returning home we call them mm -hmm. sea turtles um, coming mm -hmm. back. So it's gotten a lot more competitive. You know, these uh, professionals can speak English fluently. They're obviously fluent in Chinese. So they have a huge leg up 
um, you know, and, and they can really bridge the cultures in a way that I think a lot of, um, you know, Western people would have a difficult time with. So it's a lot more competitive for sure. Um, I think, you know, if you're able to get your foot in the door by studying at a university in China first, that's also a huge advantage. Um, of course, now we have to consider COVID, right? Like you can't just um, pick up and move to China for, we don't know how, how long that will be. Um, right. So I think for a lot of people that definitely put things on hold and, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure how things will, will pan out, especially, um, you know, not to get into politics, but of course, I think, you know, the US-China relationship is probably going to play, play a part in things as well. Um, so it's definitely getting a lot harder. Um, but I would say that everything that you can do to actually um, be in China and get your foot in the door that way is definitely going to help. Yeah, for sure. And it seems that you're also a part of some networks. You're uh, the vice president of the International Professional Women's Society based out of Shanghai, I believe. Um, you know, what sort of benefit or what's the reason for being involved in, you know, women's professional networks and how has that um, helped you in your career as of late? The really awesome thing about Shanghai is that there are always so many events going on. There's so many different communities. So when I first moved mm. there, I didn't know anybody at all. And I just went to as many events as I could every single week. It was going to like three or four networking events per week. And I came across an IPWS event and just loved, you know, the the people. I loved the content. Um, and so I kept going back and later I got involved um, on the board of directors. So we have 10 people who really, uh, you know, help plan all the events and keep the community running. Um, so I, I got involved that way. And it's really, I think, helped um, shape, you know, my both my professional and my personal life in China. Having that mm. support network has been huge, um, you know, not only just uh, for personal reasons, but I think in China, you have a really unique opportunity to connect with professionals um, at a much higher level than you, than you would anywhere else in the world. You know, you can um, connect with C-levels, you can connect with um, really incredible entrepreneurs, because it's a place where everybody is really, I think, um, trying to help everybody and everyone wants to be, you know, connected. I think the, the power of a network is huge in China. Um, so this has been a really, I think, key part of um, all the, the steps I've taken in my career so far. I don't think, you know, without going to these events and putting myself out there, meeting these different people, you know, taking every opportunity, if somebody asks for coffee, you know, always saying yes, um, has really been, uh, I think, a cornerstone of, um, you know, building a network and, um, you know, being somewhat successful um, up to this point. Did you stumble upon IPWS or was it come, did it come through a recommendation? You know, I actually, I think 
you start going to events and then you get added into WeChat groups and then more people post about events. So I think it was kind of like <laughs> one door open after another. And I just, yeah, stumbled into this event um, in March of 2016. And then I think I've, you know, been to nearly every single event since that. Um, IPWS is actually one of the longest running communities in Shanghai. So this year we're going into our 28th year, I think. Um, and it was founded in the early wow. 90s by two women who at that time, you know, they were really among some of the only professional women mm -hmm. um, in China because, um, of course, you know, there, there were expats, but usually it would be um, that, you know, you would be there with your partner who would be working, um, but there just weren't a lot of female professionals going over there. So these women... Um, you know, got connected and then they realized that they started seeing more and more women turning up. So they thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could support each other somehow? And so they, they formed IPWS um, 28 years ago. And, you know, since then, it's been, I think, a pillar in Shanghai, really helping people from all different backgrounds, all different industries connect. Um, I hear a lot of times from people who attend our events that, you know, the community is really unique because it, it is really bridging all different backgrounds and industries together. You can find a lot of, you know, like French women in China or, you know, Americans in China, like a lot of groups that are very niche down. And that's awesome. I think, you know, everybody um, you can be involved in as many communities as you want. Um, but what IPWS really provides is this kind of overarching um, support to the professional community. And, um, you know, not only female professionals, you know, we do encourage and we do have men attending our events because um, that is, you know, really important to um, our mission and our values to have men as, as part of the conversation. So it's been, you know, a huge honor to be a part of the community in the way that I am. And, you know, just, I think, um, yeah, it, it's a huge part of my life to actually um, have been attending the events and have made so many really great friends out of it. Yeah. And in that same vein, I always like to ask this, I guess, that come on the show, you know, what is one piece of advice that someone has given you in the past that you've actually found yourself giving to someone else more recently? And I, I guess I ask this because I like to think about what advice sticks with people because um, we get a lot of feedback. We get a lot of advice over time. But I do feel like the things that you end up imparting on others meant that it was something that was worthwhile to you. I think, you know, one piece of advice, I'm not sure I've given it to other people, but it has continued to stick with me um, over the past year for sure, mm. is, um, you know, hire people or work with people who are smarter than you. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, the tendency mm -hmm. is to, especially, um, you know, I think for a lot of people who have moved to China or live in China to to make it on your own or to think that you you need to, to do everything yourself and be very independent. Um, but this advice was given to me by another woman who um, founded an agency in China and is now very, very successful. Um, and I heard her speak last year and one of, you know, 
the things that she said was the best thing that she did for her business was to hire somebody smarter than her. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, that because they can do all the work or that they'll, they'll make everything easy for you, but that they will push you and take you to places that you never thought of before. Um, and I know that's not like wildly new advice, but I think, you know, it's definitely something that has stuck with me um, over the past year, just kind of growing and learning um, through my own business and working with people. Yeah. And it's, it seems like it's something that's stuck with you. And that's, I think that's what makes really good advice. So it doesn't have to be the, the most new thing, just something that resonates, you know? Exactly. Olivia, I mean, this has been such a pleasure. I think there are lots of really good nuggets in there about how you do what you do and the type of advice that you're giving um, brands right now and navigating the marketing space, especially around social and e-commerce and understanding how you've gotten to a point where you can give and impart that really knowledgeable advice has been really interesting for me. Well, thank you so much for yeah asking such great questions and wanting to have me on in the first place. Thank you so much. Want more Ta for Ta? Hit subscribe to get updates on our episodes. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Ta for Ta. And we love messages over email at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Ta for Ta, Women's Success China is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. And until next time, I'm Juliana Batista and this is Ta for Ta.